the Paperless Federalists, episode number five, Federalist number five. I'm Kerry. I'm Justin. All right, Justin, this concludes our romp through the initial uh, J series until we get to the 60s and have his uh, closer. But uh, on uh, episode number five, or on Federalist number five, uh, give me your five-minute summation of what you think he's trying to say here. Um, well, in Federalist number five, uh, John Jay concludes a four-part series about the concerning the dangers of, from foreign force and influence. And he begins this one by reference to Queen Anne in, in uh, her letter uh, dated the July 1st, 1706 to the Scottish Parliament, uh, making some observations about the importance of the union that was forming between England and Scotland at the time. The quotes that he references there really hit home the idea that we're better off together than we are apart, and it is the most effectual way to secure the present and future happiness of the citizens of the Isle. He then says, hey, look, you know, I just talked about this previously in the last paper, uh, that a strong federal, united federal government is the best way to protect from invited uh, aggression. And once again, uh, he likes to reference Great Britain uh, as his main analogy, and he does so again here. Um, well, they're all from there. <laughs> I'm not going to let you bait me into that argument. <laughs> um, I, I, will, I will give you a second. A second crack at it. Okay. Later, right, on. later on. Okay. Um, so uh, he references Great Britain again. And he points out, he says, hey, look, this is the one that we're probably all best acquainted with. This is the example of Great Britain. And why don't we try to learn from them a bit as opposed to repeating all of their errors uh, and paying the price for it. Uh, he then goes on and talks about how, look, if, and he brings back his straw man of uh, this idea of uh, three or four sub-nations in the Americans, in the uh, confederacies. The old straw man red herring that the yeah. Federalists always like to put forward. Yes, yes. It's eventually, they're, they're going to turn into essentially bordering nations. They're not going to be uh, working together. Um, he then goes into this idea that even if you could start them off on the same footing, were that possible? Eventually, one's going to become stronger than the other, and that whenever this happens, they're going to end up with a situation where people from one are concerned about what the other one's going to do or not do. Uh, they're going to start having conflicts between the two of them. Uh, they're going to start having distrust, uh, and nothing of, of any you know nothing good can come from that kind of situation. You have distrust amongst the confederacies. He points out the next that generally speaking, the north part, the northern part of the thirteen uh, states is uh, where a lot of the uh, strength would probably lie, and that eventually they would become the stronger. He is forecasting the stronger of the confederacies, uh, and that eventually they're going to because they've been so removed from Europe physically uh, that they're going to look to advance themselves by going down and attacking the southern confederacies. But then he dis discusses this idea that really that's exactly what Britain and France and Spain would really like to see is we're weakened as a result of having been three, become three or four confederacies and we're really only formidable towards each other but we have no real strength and there's no real threat. Uh, any one of the confederacies would not present any kind of real threat to any of the powers of Europe. Then he really just lays it out and says, look, these confederacies are going to turn into distinct nations. They're not going to be in any real way loyal to any anyone else. And they would have different alliances with different powers uh, and distinct treaties, distinct productions of commodities, uh, distinct markets, and that eventually different commercial concerns would create different interests and different degrees of political attachment to and connections with different foreign powers. Um, now, I mentioned this already. Uh, he, he, this idea of the distance from Europe, and then we would be attacking one another, essentially. Sort of a Europe, a Europe all over again. It would be. It'd be another Europe, is what he's envisioning. Uh, and that it, when we start attacking each other, we'll form these alliances with 
with the powers from Europe would invite into our ports. Like one confederacy would invite some other power to assist them into a conflict versus another and in, into another with another confederacy. But then, hey, you know, it's easier to brawl in an assistance. It's much harder to expel them. And he makes reference then to, you know, the Romans would often say, hey, we're just going to come over and help assist you guys and help. Uh, but then once they would get in there, into that particular area, they would turn it into another little mini section of Rome. Or they enact their own agenda, much like the British after uh, during colonial periods. Yeah, and so I mean that's pretty much a summation of of number five. Initial thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I, I, that seems to be where it's going. Um, on this uh, particular paper of Jay's, I really, I think this is where the uh, anti-federalists were able to skewer him best. Okay. He just seems to walk right into it with uh, an argument by the Anti-Federalists. The Anti-Federalists responded to this paper in the New York Journal on December 3rd of 1787. And they directly addressed this particular Federalist paper. Okay, what'd they say? The main thing they focused on was this one, whereas I, I feel like, uh, you know, not to be smirched, Jay and his knowledge of international politics and no. history at the time. Well, we've been so kind to John Jay thus far. <laughs> That's so, true. You know, That's true. I, we've I, been nothing but. Uh, I'd hate to be anything less than charitable deference, to him at this point. Not constant deference to John Jay up to date. <laughs> so maybe we could break from that tradition of constant deference and and give him a, a be mildly critical. Mildly critical of John Jay. <laughs> well, in any case, uh, yeah, it, it seems like the anti-federalists knowledge of the situation with the Scottish Union of England might be a little bit better. And they, they, they hammer him on this. They say, look, you, you, in this paper, they're yeah. essentially saying, look, you're acting like this Scottish Union with England was just this wonderful thing that everyone loved. And was besides, it? it's going to do all these wonderful things for everybody and make Scotland and England happier. Are the, are the anti-federalists suggesting that John Jay oversold a point? Oversold a point? I know, it's stunning to hear. Stunning! Shocking! Stunning, <laughs> stunning to hear, but for a little historical context, and I know I, I first was clued on to this by, uh, uh, there's a documentary series uh, by Simon Sharma called The History of Britain. He talks about this. Uh, but basically, the reason for the Scottish Union uh, with England is that they had no other choice. They were completely out of other options. These Scottish people had basically gambled all their money and come up snake eyes. Okay. Right? They, there was something called what's called the uh, Darien Affair. And what what basically was, was, you know, the uh, the country of Scotland, you know, had long felt that uh, they were dwar- sort of dwarfed by the power and the prestige of Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who not only seemed to have a lot more power and uh, influence in the European uh, political scene, but also, you know, was much more wealthy. And so um, the people, the uh, Scotland had this idea that they were going to try to catch up quickly by what in modern eyes might seem to be basically a Ponzi scheme. You know, where uh, their plan was that Scotland was going to engage in this overseas expedition they were going to go to what's now known as what's now the country of Panama, and they were going to set up pretty much the big city in Panama, mm-hmm. who, and this again, is pre-Panama Canal, mm-hmm. but the idea was they were going to set up this colony in Panama that was going to be the big place to go. Mm-hmm. And all the, all the people who would have traded with Asia would go there to Panama, because again, then as now, even mm-hmm. before even before the canal existed, you know, it's, it's the narrowest point yeah. between the Atlantic and Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was 
They're going to have this big city there. Traders are going to go there, drop off their cargoes, and they were pretty much going to monopolize all trade between the Atlantic Tax and Pacific. Tax everything, yeah. It sounded like, basically, they're going to be printing money. Mm-hmm. So, they essentially, the va- you know, a huge fraction of the people of Scotland mm-hmm. invest a huge fraction of their wealth in this expedition because it's the ultimate get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah. And so they spend all their money on it. Mm-hmm. They send this overseas expedition there. Long story short, it doesn't work out. It's incompetently managed. <laughs> uh, and the whole thing like goes bust. Okay. And so much like much more modern, you know, get-rich-quick schemes, everybody who inv- invested it is suddenly desperate. Mm-hmm. So you have this sizable chunk of the, Sc- of the Scottish people, including their nobility and their, you know, their money classes, who all of a sudden have lost this huge amount of money mm-hmm. in this get rich quick scheme that totally went bust. Mm-hmm. And they got nothing. Hmm. And at the time, concurrently with this, uh, England had a lot of col- colonial projects that were going on that they made out like bandits on. Yeah. And so at the time, uh, between all of their different plans, England has a ton of money. And so flush with cash, they go up to uh, over to... to to Scotland and say, well, that's a shame about your colony thing. Coincidentally, we have a ton of extra money. If you want to join us, we can repay everybody and give you all your money back for yeah. that. In exchange, you guys just join up with us. And so, you know, especially for those people who had money, it was yeah. a great way to um, zero out their losses. So uh, not go, not become poor. Also. Exactly. <laughs> so they they joined with England mm-hmm. and they made good all their losses. And at the time, again, Queen Anne was supportive of it. Yeah. And a lot of the nobles were supportive of it because in addition to money, they got a lot of other rights and uh, Mm -hmm. privileges uh, under this treaty of union, this Mm -hmm. vote of union. Um, But it was very unpopular. There was a lot of taking to the streets and protests among the lower middle classes Mm -hmm. who felt like it was selling out Scottish interests and Scottish heritage in order to... Well, they didn't lose a lot in this point. Get this, this money back because they didn't they didn't have a lot to invest in the first place. So, well, they 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 made good their losses, but no, I meant I meant the lower classes that were riding in the streets. You know, mm-hmm. they're probably like, "Hey, you lost your money. That's you know tough for you, but don't go sell our country to Britain. exactly don't sell yeah. out our heritage yeah. and our rights and our yeah. traditions." Uh, but you know, it was it was voted through by of the, course uh, the higher classes, <laughs> by all the rich people. Yeah, <laughs> so coming back to Federalist Number Five. Okay, it's coming back. Um, <laughs> And I know it's been a scenic route, I take it. But uh, basically the point of the Anti-Federalist is, ah, you revealed yourselves because this whole Scottish Union with England was just all these well-to-do rich people trying to materially benefit and selling out the rights of the common people in order okay. to benefit from themselves. And he said, similarly, what this Constitution is, is protecting the rights of the wealthy and the powerful at the cost of the common man. Yeah. And it really crystallizes the parties that interest, really, regarding the debate between the Constitution and, and non-Constitution. Between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Exactly. The okay. Federalists tend, tend to be those, the merchants, the urban people, the people who wanted to be more engaged mm-hmm. in transactions that would require you know, money mm-hmm. and credit and things like that, mm-hmm. versus the regular subsistence farmers who didn't want to have a bunch of foreign entanglements and just want to be left alone to live in peace. And so I feel like Jay really sort of walks right into, um, and the NFLers get the better of him and saying, 
you know, this analogy you use, it just shows how wrongheaded your ideas are because what you're trying to argue for is exactly what happened with Scotland and England of the common people losing so that the more well-off people can get a material benefit. Okay. Uh, and I, I have to say, I feel like the anti-federalists get the, on this particular paper get the better of the argument because if I, if I were Jay, I feel like I wouldn't have used the Queen Anne of Scotland argument well, in you the know, Acts of Union. The anti-federalists maybe have a tried-and-true response here, right? Both sides are trying to convince the population as a whole uh, of what to do, to either mm-hmm. ratify or not ratify, okay? And they're having the ability, it sounds like, from, from the response to Federalist Number 5, of taking the populist common man approach. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and populist arguments usually resonate with the, with the populist. Where Jay is, is, is talking more along the lines of broad brushstrokes and, and, and higher, um, let's say higher thought, but... Um, you know, the, the anti-fairless... High-minded high ideals. Themes. Yeah, high-level themes, okay? Uh, the anti-fairless are able to come in and say, ah, look, you're just like the, you know, these Scots that, so, that basically bankrupt themselves in Scotland. And, and you're, you're trying to, to preserve the wealth and power and consolidate it in this one federal government that the ruling class w- will then have. He, he very... I think the anti-fairless really burn him effectively here. Mm-hmm. Because in Federalist Four, one of his main sub-themes was America's only have just wars that benefit all of America. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to monarchs in other countries in Europe, where they go to war just to benefit the the royalty, mm-hmm. and not it's nothing really about the common people at all. We're not fighting and dying for the king to get more land. Mm-hmm. But then in Five, he just seems to lose a lot of ground he made in Four, because the anti-federalists are able to point out, you were making this argument. That we should try to do this union of states similar to the union that Scotland made with Britain, where the main beneficiaries were the nobles and the royalty mm-hmm. at the cost of the common people and their values and their heritage and their beliefs, and analogize that, see, if our states join up here, we're going to surrender a lot of what makes us individually unique and interesting and, and uh, meritorious as states and surrender to that to this federal authority to benefit the powerful against the 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 basic landowning farmers. That's where I feel like the NFL was trying to go there. And I feel like the J just like sets him up for that, unfortunately. I feel like he, he got maybe he got a little bit careless in three or four and and, and, and in five he you know just started to become a little bit enamored of his own rhetoric. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I think that it'd be fair to say that I mean at least I don't know. I, I feel like John Jay could have boiled his, his points down in three, four, and five and combined them perhaps into one paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> would you agree? I mean, I don't know. It just, uh, we, I, I feel a bit, I'm sure the listeners feel a bit, like we've trotted over the same ground a couple times in our last couple episodes. And it's not from our own choosing, but more so just the way Mr. Jay has structured his, his arguments. Um, yeah, I feel like this yeah. could have all been one paper in some ways if you would tighten up a little bit. Yeah. But nonetheless, in five... I feel like five is where it really comes to a head. Five is where he pulls out all the stops. And he really tries to most directly state his case to the people in a not very subtle way of the part that's less easy to rebut and where he's stronger is when he basically just lays out the political reality of, look, if we divide down into these states or confederacies, why do you think we're not going to end up like Europe where we're just a bunch of... You know, separate nations yeah. on the same 
patch of land we're always we're gonna end up fighting each other all yeah. the time and so this gets to the point where he starts and, he, and john jay postulates he says look let's just assume for a moment that you could have three or four confederacies they're all basically equal mm-hmm. as far as status and power and wealth mm-hmm. and let's just assuming you could even have that happen mm-hmm. uh where where is it and what part of history do you draw from that you could suggest with a straight face that that's going to remain the case in the long term and and he basically says that's just ridiculous to think that it's going to last like that even if you could start it like that there's no way it would last and it would, it would stay the same and inevitably what what would you happen you can't ignore history you can't ignore history and inevitably he what he expects to happen what would happen is that they would pull away from each other one would become stronger than the other one you know and then once that happens and there's an imbalance in power um what would happen is there would be kind of grow distrust between the confederacies concern about what's the other one doing or not going to do what's their ambition or not gonna, you know are they gonna are they eyeing us for some reason you know and is there some sort of insult that occurs between the two confederacies or between three of the confederacies or two of them allying against one and a different one mm-hmm. and these um worries and jealousies would form and that that's just it would be a disastrous effect for the 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 idea of having three or four confederacies existing as some sort of um cohesive body uh because once you start having distrust distrust breeds more distrust jealousy breeds more jealousy and even if there's anything you know that was overtly happening or if it's just implied you could go down that path and he goes further than to say that look the reality is, is on the continent, as it were at the time, the North is generally a region of strength and that over time it would become even stronger. And then what would happen is that because of the distance between the physical distance of the time between the continent of North America and Europe, the North would look to the South to basically go and pillage, you know, yeah. that it's going to go down there with its, with its Northern hive is the phrase he uses and basically go and gather honey from the blooming fields and milder air of their luxurious and more delicate neighbors in the South. Well, this is where I feel like he really... This is the one area where I'll give him credit for seeming to know his audience. Because, again, you know, we're talking about these Federalist Papers in the abstract. Mm-hmm. But they're to the people of New York. And the people, the, the state of New York was not one of the countries that was one of the bigger proponents initially for the Constitution. They were more of a hard sell. And one of the reasons for that was the state of New York... You know, was one of those states who felt like it was one of the more powerful states at the time. Sure, yeah. And felt like, hey, in this situation of the Confederacy with weaker federal power, we're one of the stronger states. And so absent of federal power to restrain us, yes, we could probably get more advantage out of having there be not, a, you know, a, yeah. a, an absence of federal power. So what you're saying is that New York felt like they were the large stack at the final table of the World Series of Poker. And 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 they. I'm had, gonna have had, to agree with you from there, with from a lack of not. Okay, like like they've got they've got the upper hand in the sense that they have the resources and they can bully and push around the smaller players and slowly pick them off at opportune times. Exactly. And, right. And they're gonna take over New Jersey. They're gonna take over other smaller states around them. Exactly. So and that uh, a unifying and pooling of everyone's resources is not gonna benefit them. And in fact, um, in case no one. It's gonna restrain them. Yeah. 
It is. And in fact, in case anybody didn't listen to the earlier episodes, if you want to go back and listen, we mentioned earlier that New York actually ratified when after 10 other states had already ratified. And only nine was required for everyone to be bound by it. So they were, they were, New York was a late joiner. And the reality is, is by the time they got around to ratifying, they were already part of the the United States of America. The Constitution had been ratified. So it was kind of of an act. Nine states required. They were the 11th. It was kind of an after the fact deal for them. Jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, well, you know, better to be, you know, it looked like you were against it. That's right. You know, at the time. So if they're going to be forced to be part of it, they want to look like they're for it and then go from there. You know what? Between the United States of America versus New York. Does not, no. Uh, I'm sure there's probably plenty of cases, though. Uh, but my point being... <laughs> well, versus New York. <laughs> my point being, though, that Jay... This is one of the stronger parts of his, his paper. Jay is giving a fair warning to New York and saying, Look, don't just think that as one of the stronger states, if you keep the national power weak, things mm-hmm. are going to be great for you. No. Because an implication of this paper is if other states see you as one of the stronger powers, they're going to create alliances against you. And yes, it's nice to be a strong state in a weak federal system, but while there's advantages of being that, you're also a target because you're one of the people people are, you're one of the states that people are afraid of. Yeah. And so they're going to ally against you. And so are you in in total, are you going to be greater under this federal system we're talking about that will safeguard your rights versus foreign powers? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to be greater in a situation of relative chaos where other states are going to be aligned to control you and contain you? Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the parts of this paper where I feel like Jay is actually doing a pretty good job of being persuasive to the people of New York. Yes, his audience. Because I feel like in the England Scotland thing, he sort of that was a mistake. It seems like maybe, yeah. Uh, so Jay goes on then after this uh, analogy about the North being strong and going down and collecting honey from the South. Eventually, what's going to happen is is that there's going to be such discord, jealousy, and mutual injuries amongst the states that what what's going to happen between is that we're just going to be formidable relative formidable relative to each other, and that will be a bunch of a collection of weak individual nations. Uh, which is exactly what you know the other powers of Europe would, would like to see us be. Because as long as, again, with the idea at the time, you mentioned this in prior, I think the discussion of Fellows 4, the belief of the economic viewpoint of the world at the time is a zero-sum game, right? Mm-hmm. So the other powers of Europe, if we're all weak and in, individually, that means collectively the group of weak states have less power than one unified whole, mm-hmm. and therefore they're better off. So the powers of Europe would would prefer us to see Jay is saying uh, is arguing here that uh, you know if we're if we're uh, if the collections of confederacies or individual states are relatively weak that means there's more power in the world and prosperity be grabbed back by Europe yeah uh, and they benefit from that so and and will be reduced by having not combined uh, ourselves uh, and there will be these distinct nations that are really only a threat to each other and no one else Either not not just militarily, but economically as well. Well, I feel like the way he best reinforces that point is by again, you know, states like New York and Virginia, you know, the the more powerful states at the time, they might still believe that okay, we're such we're so overwhelmingly strong as states that even a confederacy of states would be hard to press to contain us. Where even a state that feels as strong as New York or Virginia again has to acknowledge that another state plus France or plus England or mm-hmm. plus Spain, where foreign powers come in and support one of them, mm-hmm. 
you know, is much stronger. You know, you, you might not be very concerned about going into a conflict, military, diplomatic, or economic, with, for example, those sad sacks in New in Rhode Island. <laughs> you know, they got nothing. Poor Rhode Islanders. They're, they're <laughs> tiny. They got like, what, one city? Yeah. You totally take them. But you add Rhode Island plus England or plus France or plus Spain, mm-hmm. that's a more difficult nut to crack. It is. And so that's a, that's a pretty good point he makes of to contain, you know, maybe a tendency of some of the stronger states to think we're, compared to some of these states, we're a pretty strong state. And so under a weaker federal system, we would have more advantage. He says, not so fast. Not so fast. Because what's going to happen is is the weak states are going to invite in these foreign powers mm-hmm. to help prop them up to prevent being run over by a big state like New York. You know, then he says, hey, little states, don't forget also, once you bring them in, it's much harder to get them out. Once mm-hmm. you, once you, you know, sell out to the, exactly. to the big, you know, to the big power, getting rid of their influence and their, you know, force over you is, is going to be a much harder task than bringing them in. Exactly. Of course, they're always going to come in saying, we are here as liberators, not conquerors. Mm-hmm. We're here as allies. You know, not, not influencers, but, you know, of course, that's what always, everyone always says. Yeah, that, and, you know, that really could be where that's the one opportunity he, he let slip in that he almost got to the point through, you know, here we are at Federal State for number five. We're mm-hmm. at the end of the J series of two, three, four, and five. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we've talked continuously about it, the fact that he's very strong with the military part, but that was also the strongest part of the Confederation. Yeah. Whereas he's weak economically, which is, again was the weakest part of the economic was the part the weakest part, part of the, the con- articles of the Confederation. Yeah. Whereas the link he could have made to make his argument stronger was the fact that it was commonly viewed at the time that there's not really a bright line between economic and military as far as methods to advance state interest. Okay. And, you know, again, using their, the closet's quote, quote again, you know, there's a lot of things that are, paraphrasing it, a lot of things that are war by other means, including mm-hmm. economic warfare, you know, trying to block other countries out of markets. And he could have made his argument stronger by asserting that, yes, the article, Articles of Confederation are very strong in their delegation Mm-hmm. of military and foreign policy power to the national government. But weak economically, but the problem is, in real life, there's not that bright line division. And the economic conflicts between states that were often happening at the time of the Constitutional Convention and, and around that time, you know, they're not going to stay segregated from foreign policy conflicts. They're going to bleed over. And if you just kept under the Articles of Confederation, if there's a real struggle between two different states about who has rights between them to tax trade or to control a river or a trade route or something like that, is that going to stay segregated and separate from a foreign policy conflict? Or is it going to bleed over and cause one of the states to start to fudge the foreign policy aspects and invite another country in to try to settle those? Mm-hmm. We didn't see those fights because the gap between when they arose after the Articles of Confederation and the victory in the Revolutionary War and when the Constitution was ratified by the states was a relatively short period of time. But if it wasn't passed, if we didn't have the Constitution, would they have escalated to the point that it had 
blood over into armed conflict. Well, that was, you know, if in case no one's listened to the earlier episodes, we talked about leading up to the reasons for a call for a constitutional convention. convention thank you. Uh, were things like the post road and the tariff, essential tariffs between each other and yeah. each other states? I think Jay is referencing some recent history of maybe not specific, like and pointing to it, but in saying, look, there's already little things that are developing. Yeah. You know, you, the states in and amongst themselves are already raising tariffs on each other and taxing things that free flow of goods are being interrupted by, by these taxes. Exploiting the loopholes in the way that companies nowadays might with yeah, modern rules, absolutely. modern laws. And so I think he is wisely, correctly predicting that you know, the weaker states are not going to just sit there. They're going to invite in other powers back in to assist them in this power play between between themselves and the larger states. Yeah. And now, and then, but he's also warning them and saying, "Look, once you bring them in, you know, it's going to be it's almost impossible to get rid of them." You yeah. Know? I mean, um, so it's it's a warning. It's a warning to both. State of Rhode Island. The next time you're the Rhode Island protectorates. Exactly. <laughs> and so he's warning the small states, like once you bring them in, it's hard to get rid of them. And he's warning the big states that, like, you're not just going to. Just run rampant here on this continent with nobody checking your power. So I, I don't know. I feel like that probably addresses the bulk of what what Jay was saying in here in, in Federalist Number Five, and, and you I think brought in the counterpoints of anti Federalist Brian. I think a major thumbs something that also needs to be addressed here oh, okay. right. is that as particularly strong in one through one through five mm. uh, is that Hamilton in his in paper number one and Jay in two through five seems to really be explicitly arguing, look, this is a systemic problem where we need to totally change up the system to make it a system of more strong centralized power and not this diffused power to the states. Now, again, I think we've sort of agreed in two through five that Jay, perhaps wrongly, seems to focus on the foreign policy and military aspects of it when he could have more strongly argued other aspects. But either way, they're arguing it's a system problem. Yeah. And from what I have read of the Anti-Federalist papers that were responsive to 1 through 6, mm-hmm. their counter seems to be mostly, no, it's not a systemic problem. You know, the government's fine. The Articles of the Confederation are fine. It's just that the peop- the particular people who have been in charge so far haven't been great. They're claiming user error. They're, yeah. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, they're saying they're saying that, look, it's not the system. It's it's the application. We've got a good federal operating system right now. <laughs> right? I mean... We just have right? a bunch of people who think that the right? CD-ROM drive is a cup holder. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But no, you know, seriously. They're, they're, they're looking for the any key. On the keyboard of the yeah of the but of that the, is you know is that a fair point because just, like know. they say look so far we haven't had great leaders and one thing that reinforces them is you know name off the top of your head who were the presidents of the United States under the Arctic Confederacy uh, well answer? apparently John Jay was one of them I know that much there you go. But, <laughs> I mean, they're not memorable leaders they're, they're not, not known no, as being great no, they're not. and yeah, the Articles of Confederacy yeah, the, got some things done the presidency but, as I understand it was basically uh, under the Articles of Confederation was really just a it was much more like a prime minister under the well, parliamentary it, system it was, it was it unicameral was, one house it was an honorary position I guess is the word I was trying to think well you know, I mean it's I mean, than honorary but like it was like a prime minister okay. of Britain nowadays yeah. I mean like you I don't even know that, your party. Yeah, I don't know, you know even know that they had that much power. Up, you yeah. could be kicked to the curb pretty easily. There's one year terms. Yeah, they were one you year terms. You weren't terribly powerful. 
that's just I, I mean I think they were probably even less powerful than the Prime Minister of Britain is. But that yeah. that seems to be the one of the core anti-federalist arguments is nothing is wrong with the system. It's just that the people who we have had so far as leaders yeah. have a bunch of schmucks, buffoons, what have you. Yeah. That doesn't mean the system's bad. It just means that we're waiting to to elect really wise people when they haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Plus, don't forget that the anti-federalists, for the most part, I mean, including Thomas Paine, being one of them, very much focused on this idea of government and power is best when, you know, the person, they're more rural. And so they take the rural application of, in, in, in many things of, I'm going to farm my land. A man should be able to have his home, farm his land, produce for his family, have a good wage, have a decent life. If he has a concern, if he has a concern, go to his local government form of government or the county seat. The seat, county seat. The county seat. The core of American government right, in exactly. modern day. Right. Right. <laughs> Discuss things out. You know, local politics. Uh, all politics is local, and and if if something is of real import, it'd be at the state level. But beyond that, you know, few things should be held at the you know like large-scale things such as military collective efforts against other aggressive powers that might wipe everybody out. Like, you know, such large-scale things should be handled with the federal government, but only those few limited types of deals. The NFL seem much more focused on the idea that these yeah. these artificial national issues are really just an artificial means to distract the common man from what he really cares about. Yeah. You know, the bread and butter issues, farming his land, growing his crop, taking it to town, selling it. Yeah. You know, in fact, how much they, does the average phrase? farmer care about a war with England or Spain or France? Phantom danger. It just takes away right? resources, takes money out of his pocket. Right. They use the, anti-federalists use the, the, the phrase of phantom, phantom dangers or something. What was it? What was it? They like to talk about phantoms and bugbears is what it Phantoms. Found. Okay. I, right. I don't know if they're like Dungeons and Dragons players or not. <laughs> Bug, bugbears? Bugbears. They're, bug they're bears. a higher, they're a high level goblin essentially. Higher than phantoms. Okay. Yes. Right. <laughs> they, so, uh, but my point being is that. They're a very tough form of goblin. In, in calling, in calling the federalists concerns phantoms, anti-federalists are basically trying to say. bugbears. So, yes. It's just telling the point, you know, look, this is, none of this is real. This isn't, you know, these concerns, these problems um, just are not going to affect the common person. So while all of these, you know, intellectuals in the urban centers are coming up with this idea for a more restrictive consolidation of power in the federal government, it's not really necessary. And it's talking about theoretical issues. Yes. That don't, you know, that doesn't put any food on the table. Not going to affect your day to day life. Yep. In the in the common sense Thomas Paine esque meaning of the word. Yeah. You know. You know. I don't know that I've got a whole lot else I can think of uh, that I think we missed. And I know we're. Leaving. I have one thing. Okay, one thing. I have one thing. Throw it out there. I think the the weakness of the NFLisk argument is their inability to time travel a hundred years into the future. Okay. And, <laughs> and it's the weakness of many government policies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, Flesh because that out a bit. Like, they really seem to be hanging a lot on this idea of, you know, everything that's happened so far, it's just we haven't had the right people doing it. Mm -hmm. But everything will be fine once we get the right people. And everything, this system is good. Yeah. It's just that we haven't had wise people okay. doing it so far. So and implicit in that is the idea that the wise people be in federalists. And the unwise people are the Federalists, and they've okay. had control. But uh, 
I, I kept coming back to the idea of uh, bad man theory, which you might be familiar with from law, from your own law school education, okay. um, you know, brought up by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh-huh. This idea of, you know, if you want to know if a law or a system or anything like that, a regime, etc., a constitution uh-huh. is good, the test of it, and this could be germane to the, the times we live in. Uh-huh is would someone who is a bad person, who is totally unconcerned with law or with, with not law, with someone un, totally unconcerned with morality or good or evil, uh-huh. would this law contain them and still force them to make good decisions or at least non-horrible decisions? Because, of course, when the people who were in charge, mm-hmm. when the people making decisions are all incredibly wise philosopher kings moral individuals Mm -hmm. of course any number of laws would work in that situation absolutely if you always have Abraham Lincoln in charge (laughs) then of course the law doesn't matter as much because he's going to be wise regardless yes but if you have some like immoral person who's horrible in charge (laughs) then the law matters because the law should be able to take if you don't need law if you have a wise ruler yeah that's the idea of monarchy generally. Monarchy works great when you have a wise ruler. A benevolent king. But when but then they have kids and grandkids who aren't so wise. No. And when you have absolute power, and this is the whole underpinning of American power, American ideology is that when you have someone who's not so smart, mm-hmm. not so wise, not so moral, do you have laws and norms and rules to constrain their ability to do damage Mm -hmm. and the anti-federalist position seems to be well we just haven't had the right people yet Mm -hmm. but the critique to that is well you can't govern a country that way yeah you can't govern a country thinking that well as long as we have good people philosopher kings Mm -hmm. who are supremely wise and moral Everything will be great. You know, when you're doing an equation of government, if wise and moral leadership, then great times, of course, that's always going to be true. But the problem is not the then, it's the if. It's the how do you get the wise and the moral and the intelligent people on the front end. Mm -hmm. And that's what the federal seems to be strongest at, is saying, look, this system, even if we have bad people, because they build it in. Yeah. And the checks and balances idea, yeah. even if we have bad people, this will work. Yeah. Whereas the anti-federalist position seems to be weak insofar as they say, we'll get better people and this is a passive problem. Yeah. But yeah. you can't always count on the supremely wise and the supremely educated. That's why I think is a, a, something that, you know, again, Oliver Wendell Holmes and mm-hmm. his bad man theory of law didn't emerge until 100 years later or so. Yeah. So, of course, it was... You know, they couldn't time travel in the future to find no. it and take it no. back, but no. it's a weakness of our argument, no. I think. Because, of yeah. course, yeah. if every ruler was Socrates, there'd be much less problems with you know with how governments ha- function in real exactly. life. Exactly. But you know, we can't always count on. You know, sometimes you get a Hitler or Stalin, you know, yeah. and you know, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you don't have the ability to constrain them, then you know. So I, yeah, I really feel like the basic poli sci one hundred and one. Mm-hmm. Bad man theory of law mm-hmm. is really applicable here of as much as the anti-federalists can really sting John Jay mm-hmm. for this particular fumble of walking into 
a bad historical analogy. Yeah. To the larger point of, well, we're going to find good people, and when we have good people, government will be great. Yeah. Well, you know, John Jay has the imagination on them then. And yeah. I guess maybe, you know, to avoid John Jay rolling <laughs> over in his grave, yeah. I guess in the end, the conclusion is that even though maybe he didn't go the most efficient way of establishing it, yeah. you know, his points in in some total may be more valid than this the other Federalist stuff. You've got to legislate and structure government in such a way that you can deal with the bad, the worst case, and not just the best case. I think that's an excellent point. I guess I hadn't really thought about it like that. Um, any, any other thoughts? Well, you know, I think I've done a light, nice soliloquy there, so I'm going to leave it there. Yeah, I'm going to pull a George Costanza and just wh- do a hand wave, hand wave and, and say, say I'm out of here. Out. I'm done. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, well, clearly, Mr. J did yeah. <laughs> after that because he disappeared until I mean, I'm not sixty-four. <laughs> hitting the head with a brick or anything, <laughs> but I think I'm going to close on that note. So okay. Uh, well, we'll leave it there at that, and uh, we'll see if uh, by the time we get around to episode uh, 64, uh, we'll find out what exactly John Jay was doing in the interim uh, 50, or 59 uh, Federalist Papers. And we're hoping to find a Jay file by that point, hopefully. <laughs> but uh, thank you for so, joining us for this particular uh, expedition in 3, 4, and 5. Federalist 3, 4, and 5 into the Jayverse at large. There you go. Or actually, um, three, 2 through 5. And, and we're looking uh, forward to seeing you in episode six. When number we go back six, to- uh, Mr. Hamilton's back uh, with uh, all his uh, vic and vitriol that he uh, brings to it. I think even 200 plus years later, uh, Mr. Hamilton's passions are very evident in uh, Federalist number six. Um, and Justin's been apparently reading ahead, so apparently just uh, <laughs> episode, uh, episode six in Federalist six is a particularly good one. So we look forward so, to seeing you there. Okay. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you.